A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the House of Pod. Oh my goodness. I know I say it every week, but this week is actually going to be a good show. I'm calling <laughs> my shot now. My name is Kave Hoda. I'm a uh, doctor and I'm going to be the host of this fun little medical podcast that we're, we're doing today. It's a special one and I have two special people to join me first. Returning guest co-host. Dr. Sophie Balzora, a gastroenterologist and hepatologist in New York City. She is the founding president of the ABGH, the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists. And she's my buddy, <laughs> Sophie. Most hey, importantly, buddy. my buddy. <laughs> Welcome back, buddy. It's been so long. I know. I've missed you. I missed you too. How are you doing? You doing okay? I'm doing okay. Yes. Since the last time I was on the show, we've actually connected in person. Have we not? IRL. Yes. <laughs> yes. IRL. Um, yes. Yes. Absolutely. It was fantastic. In San Francisco, you met my daughter, you met my husband. It's yeah. it was fantastic. And you were as, as fabulous in person well, as you well, are um, over the radio waves. Was I taller or shorter than you expected? <laughs> um, taller. I'm people expect me to be small when no, they really no, yeah. no. You're big I, I give off small energy. <laughs> Your big and warm personality completely matched when I saw you in person. It was honestly like we had known each other for so long. I That's feel the, the same way. No, I feel the same way. I feel like we're actually friends, not like internet <laughs> friends. I feel like we're real life friends. Right. And there's no better person for me to have on the show today. I am very excited about this. Are you as excited as I am? Yes. And when he reached out to me, I said, Oh my gosh. This is amazing. What an honor. I cannot believe this is actually happening. The stars are aligned. <laughs> okay. But before we introduce our guest, I want to first um, talk about uh, something called Freedom House. Okay. A lot of our listeners, you don't know what Freedom House is. I'm, I'm very excited to introduce you to the concept, the people behind it, 
and our guest. Let me first say that this is really important to me because it's a incredibly important part of history, not just U.S. history, but medical history as doctors and people in medicine. And it's a part of history that I, until recently, I did not know about and not enough people know about. Mm -hmm. The Freedom House Ambulance Services, which was the first emergency medical services in the United States and the first paramedics. It was founded in 1967 to serve the predominantly black Hill District of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it was staffed entirely by African-Americans. A group of black men in this country created what we now know as the paramedics and revolutionized medical care as we know it. It was groundbreaking, Freedom House, in the way it trained its staff. And it, from what I can gather, it really was light years ahead of the standards of the time, which we'll talk about. And it really set the standard, not just nationally, but I'm going to guess internationally as well. Yet, despite all this success and how great a job they did in changing the way things work, you don't know about them yet. And I'm excited to change that. I personally did not know about them until I was a guest on Margaret Kiljoy's podcast, where she did a uh, a two-parter on, on Freedom House. And then that show is called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. So if you haven't heard that, I do recommend you listen to that as well. So without further ado, that was a very long preamble. Probably one of the longest important, I've ever given. Important one. Very important one. I'm very excited to bring in someone who was a part of this history, Chief John Moon. He joined Freedom House in 1972, and he continued to work in emergency medicine for the last five decades. He now works to help preserve the Freedom House legacy, and and it sounds like he's doing a fantastic job of mentoring the next generation of emergency community responders. Retired Chief John Moon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to be here, so thanks for having me. No, no. The honor is mine. The privilege is mine. We'll share the privilege. The honor I'm taking, but we'll share the privilege because this is amazing. We're so happy to have you. Can we start by just getting a little sense of what was what was Freedom House? If I just ask you before the ambulance services, what was Freedom House? Well, if I, I could draw you a picture, we'd have to go back oh, roughly about 50 plus years ago into the 1960s um, in Pittsburgh. Um, in the Hill District itself was a uh, neglected, underserved uh, African-American neighborhood. Um, during that time frame, uh, racial prejudice was uh, at an all-time high. Uh, jobs uh, were scarce for African-Americans. Um, Lyndon Johnson decided to start flooding cities with uh, anti-poverty program money. And out of that um, idea uh, was born an organization uh, called Freedom House by a activist by the name of James McCoy. So to put it shortly, Freedom House was a uh, community organization that was specifically designed to uh, perhaps train African-Americans in job placement, uh, finding employment, uh, voter registration was uh, part of that project. And that was also a um, mini food bank uh, that ran out of there where uh, the residents of the Hill could primarily get vegetables and, and, and things delivered to their homes. 
And uh, so it was a organization that exclusively was designed for that neighborhood to help it primarily because of its uh, social status, uh, being neglected and underserved. Um, and out of that uh, cachet of, I would call it a marriage for lack of a better term, uh, the ambulance service uh, was born. And it was interesting because a gentleman by the name of Philip Halland, who was the president of a um, foundation called the Maurice Falk Foundation that had donated money to this organization. And it was his vision that said, if this organization can deliver food to the residents of this underserved, neglected neighborhood, why can't they deliver medical care? Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at the neighborhood itself, you had residents there that couldn't make it to doctor's appointments. Um, you also had residents there that uh, at that particular time, we had to rely on uh, the police to take you to the emergency rooms. Uh, that's good on the surface, but the community itself had a very, um, I guess, tenuous relationship, uh, adversarial, if you have it, uh, with the police. So here you have uh, a, a police organization, which was predominantly white, um, there was no accountability or diversity concerns during that time frame. So you would call a seven-digit number because there was no 911. And doing that, they kind of decided whether they wanted to show up or not, mm -hmm. or whenever they wanted to show up, they would take their time getting there. So if you can imagine a police wagon that perhaps had dropped off a prisoner or an intoxicated person uh, prior to that, uh, showing up at your home, the officers come to your door and oftentimes they will walk you out of the vehicle if you were able to walk and place you into the back on a canvas cot. And both officers would get up front and away you go to the emergency room. Uh, the problem with that is if something happened to you back there, i.e. you stopped breathing or your heart stopped beating, oftentimes you were worse off by the time you arrived at the emergency room. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what you had here is a service that didn't uh, supply service. And as a result of that, uh, this idea or uh, this vision of Phil Howland was born that let's try and provide a service to this community because you had residents that couldn't make it to doctor's appointments and you knew the police uh, were more or less in an adversarial nature. So we had to do something about that. You couldn't get a cab uh, to come to that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, so as a result of that, they came up with the idea that let's try and provide medical coverage to this underserved neighborhood. But they had no idea how to get that done. So Phil Howland, uh, who's a good friend of mine, uh, he's 93 years old today and still gets around. Um, mm -hmm. He knew the director of Presbyterian Hospital, which is now UPMC. So he goes over to meet uh, a gentleman by the name of Eric Nori and it says, I have this community that's lacking a lot of things, primary medical care. What can we do about that? So Ms. Nori said, I have the perfect person for you. Uh, he's chairman of the anesthesiology and critical care medicine department at here at this hospital. And he's trying to get his concept out to the world that 
It's not how fast you get the person to the emergency room that determines whether they live or die. It's what's being done for them before right. they get there. Mm -hmm. So he was the first to introduce CPR. Uh, and so you have this group of individuals. And you're that, talking about Peter Safar, Dr. Peter yes, Safar? Yes, Peter Safar. That's yeah. exactly who it was. But he had in his mind that you could have lay people provide pre-hospital care to people, but no one would believe him. So it was difficult for him to get that vision out to the street. And in doing so, here comes Freedom House with this grand idea. <laughs> Peter Saffer wanted to get his um, idea and concept out into the world. And so they partnered. And that was one requirement from Freedom House is that every person you trained to do whatever you wanted them to do had to be black. That was the one requirement. So Saffer agreed to it. So he takes 25 black men, place them into a training class. Uh, he trained them in CPR, um, IV administration, uh, blood collection, burns, trauma, uh, EKG readings. They spent time in the emergency room, the intensive care units, the operating rooms, uh, the uh, delivery rooms. They even spent time in the morgue to go over uh, anatomy and physiology. I mean, I have to ask, I hate to interrupt, but like, yes, you're walking through the halls of the hospital to get to these areas. What are people saying? How many heads are turning? Like, I mean, the idea in itself obviously is incredibly revolutionary, which we'll get into, but even that aspect, right? Because I mean, obviously you lived it, but that time or, you know, what predates it, people have to walk, you know, through the back door. People have to be, you know, not seen or heard. Like, I mean, this whole concept just blows my mind. And as Kave said, uh, I, the fact that I only heard about it last year for the first time, mm -hmm. it, you know, is a whole other issue. But what's that like walking through the halls as this group of of men that um, are in a place where people are not used to seeing this group of men? It was different at best. Right. Uh, it turned heads. Um, it 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 brought about um, a feeling of how dare you mm -hmm. uh, take these individuals? Because what people don't understand is the individuals that Dr. Saffer had to train by society standards, uh, they were the least likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, society's throwaways, uh, mm -hmm. trouble finding employment. So these these individuals already were somewhat marked, for lack right. of a better term. Mm -hmm. So he had to really step up and, and be totally committed to this concept, as much committed as the individuals that he placed in the class. Mm -hmm. So uh, once he was able to get this group together and, and have them go through all this training, uh, we were the very first to take CPR from the hospital out into the streets. It had never been done before. Uh, the, the the head of the stretcher, that seat that's there at the head of the patient, we designed that. That uh, BP cuff on the side of the wall, the suction unit that's on the side of the wall, the mm -hmm. oxygen unit on the side, all of that was designed uh, utilizing Freedom House's personnel.
Uh, so we put to these individuals through this most intense training program, and we uh, placed them in this highly staffed vehicle that had IV equipment, intubation equipment, EKG uh, monitoring equipment, trauma equipment, burn equipment, um, any IV equipment, anything that was primarily reserved for a hospital's emergency room was in the back of this truck. Right. So essentially, it was an intensive care unit on wheels. And the people were basically trained uh, to provide the most sophisticated care that had been ever been done in this country and probably the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at some of their accomplishments, uh, even though I was a part of it, it boggles my mind today because right. we were so far ahead of our time mm -hmm. that it's just it's, I, it's just amazing. I think we have to sort of reiterate, especially for anyone who's like Sophie, my age and, and younger, the concept that there yeah. wasn't a 911, that if at the time the milieu was very different for medical care out like on the streets, if you needed someone to take you to the hospital, it was either the cops, which is scary for a lot of reasons. And I'm not yeah. even trying to be political about that. I mean, just literally imagine the police trying to take care of sick patients who need airway control, breathing, you know, circulation, or a funeral home would come pick you up in a in a hearse and put you into that and rush you to the hospital. Imagine the the terror if you were critically ill and you were in the back of a hearse. <laughs> I mean, it's just I think it's really hard for for people to to understand like um when when you guys started doing this, one thing you you mentioned was that th there there had to be some significant change here and one of those was a story of David Lawrence the the former mayor of Pittsburgh, the former governor of Pennsylvania. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how that might have contributed to um, to Freedom House? It, it's it's interesting in itself because David Lawrence was at a political rally and he suffered uh, what one would believe a massive heart attack um, right there at the podium. He collapsed. Um, obviously, no one around him at that particular time knew exactly what to do. Uh, however, there happened to be a nurse uh, in the audience. And she came up to um, examine him and, and started performing CPR on him. Um, the problem with that is there was no way to get him to the emergency room. So they had to call the police. The police is accustomed to placing people in the back with both officers jumping up front and flying at warp speed to the emergency room. So in the ensuing trip, she was being thrown around in the back of the police wagon, which prevented her from doing any type of uh, pre-hospital care. Mm. CPR obviously uh, was out of the question during that time because there was no stability there. Um, once he arrived, he uh, had suffered uh, irreversible brain damage. Uh, it was discovered later and, and subsequently... Um, they were able to get his heart uh, back beating, but the brain damage was, you know, too severe that he unfortunately was never going to uh, survive as a result of that. The ironic thing about that is Dr. Peter Saffer was the 
on-call or on-duty physician in the emergency room at the time that David Lawrence uh, was rushed, brought in. And he was the first person to have an opportunity to examine him and make the decision that he had suffered irreversible brain damage. And uh, what they did is that kind of, kind of propelled him or motivated him to try to see, no one listens to me, but now look what happened. And and so that kind of propelled him to try to step up his game to make sure that that would never happen uh, to anyone again. And and Freedom House was the stepping stone, uh, if you have, uh, to to actually do that. And and so he kind of really uh, became rather aggressive in his treatment. Um, just to give you an example, I'm probably stepping ahead here. Uh, I talked about tracheal intubation yeah. uh, that we yeah. were trained for. Yeah, this uh, is something I really wanted to talk about. So please, <laughs> yes, get into it. You, 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 you're actually talking to the very first person to do a tracheal intubation in the field in this country. Wow, amazing! That's never been amazing. Really, a living legend. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> fanboying so hard right now. It's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Because, <laughs> because that is amazing. I mean, we we take it for granted now. Like oh, patients yeah, come about that today. I was like, it's incredible, you know. Because I live in New York City. Obviously, there are sirens and ambulance everywhere, every minute. Mm -hmm. And the the degree to which we take something that is still a fairly recent concept for granted. Um, right. you know, I mean, that's human nature. But it's phenomenal to think that there was a time where it wasn't like this, right? Yeah. Uh, the thought of of bringing emergency care to a patient in the field is just and to intubate them okay you have to tell us about it tell us the whole thing also i need to know in particular when you arrived at the hospital with a patient who was intubated was everyone at the hospital like i don't wait i understand did he come from another hospital what happened right. were they were they totally confused <laughs> tell me about that story. absolutely the, the story actually started obviously we had went through all these uh anatomy labs and and things of that nature we under the cover of darkness, uh, uh, practice on dogs, uh, and and that had to be you know a secret. Mm. So once we completed that, I got called uh, or assigned to Doctor Saffer. I was told to go to meet him at his office, and they didn't tell me why. So I showed up at his office. We walked to uh, the locker room, and I dressed in OR. Uh, attire and we went to the operating room and he opened the door to the operating room he and I are standing there at the door and everything stopped yeah. the the surgeon who was uh preparing his patient uh to be operated on he stopped uh the OR technicians that were uh fooling around with whatever yeah. equipment they were yeah. doing they stopped um the anesthetist who was at the head of the patient stopped and looked up and they were all, and, and, and if, if I can draw this picture, they had amphitheaters then. So yeah. you had medical students all looking down. Oh my God. That's amazing. Oh my God. And it's like a needle, like one of those needle scratch moments in a movie. Right. Or a, <laughs> How fast was your heart beating? <laughs> gracious. Well, EMT. I, you know what? That That's an interesting concept because I didn't, it didn't dawn on me until later why they were looking at me. Mm. 
because the only time a person that looked like me came into an operating room was with a mop and a bucket. Mm. Right. But I didn't have that. So Dr. Saffer and I walked into the operating room and with his lack of tact, walked over to the anesthesiologist that was at the head of the patient. He, he, he said, get up and oh you gosh. sit down and intubate the patient. <laughs> wow. And did they comply? I mean, yes, he was chairman. He, he, he was, that was his domain. Mm, he was chief yeah. of anesthesiology and critical care medicine department. So how could you not yeah. honor that request? So the guy got up and all of the equipment was lying there on the patient's chest at the time. They had already given the patient curare and paralyzed his breathing. And he simply said, intubate the patient. And I sat down and did it. <laughs> And and it's it's ironic as I think back at that time, failure was not an option. Right. Because had I failed that procedure, there's a very good chance that paramedics today would not have been doing it. Mm -hmm. Because unbeknownst to anyone in that room, we were actually writing the paramedic training manual that every paramedic in the country had to read in order to become a paramedic in the United States. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, I went from room to room during that day. That is a lot of pressure. Intubating unsuspecting. <laughs> You're patients. so cool. You're so cool. I mean, amazing. So, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anesthesiology residency to take note. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Did, did you feel did you feel confident? Did you feel like you had done enough? Or when you I, came to it in the field, were you still nervous about it? Well, that's an interesting point because I had no idea that less than a week later that I would take that same skill out into the field to perform it uh, by our, on a patient. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it was an elderly gentleman that was having trouble breathing. And um, he obviously was unconscious. And we called our medical director, which was Nancy Caroline at the time, who was instrumental in writing the paramedic manual, Emergency Care in the Streets. And we kind of gave her a, a report because medical directors had not even been invented during that time frame. Yeah. So I call in and, and I tell her what we have. And she says, intubate the patient, start an IV and transport them to the emergency room. Very simple. I, matter of fact. Yes. Simply just like that. And I thought she had lost her mind. I, <laughs> like, I, can you repeat I, that? I thought she had lost her mind. And I said, <laughs> Intubate, she says, yeah, intubate the patient. Unbeknownst to me at that time, Dr. Saffer had contacted her and told her it was a success and to let them do it. So I intubated the patient. Uh, we transported him to the emergency room after making sure that the tube was in place and, and stabilizing it and everything. And, and that set off an entirely different set of challenges, which I, I had no idea. We arrive at the emergency room, take the patient in. Uh, they didn't have emergency room physicians at that time, but the doctor that was there working challenged, well, who intubated the patient? I said, I did. And who are you? Right, exactly. That's the next question. <laughs> remember, remember like, who he's looking mom? at. Your, yep. Yes. I said, I did. And, and he said, and you are? I'm John Moon. And I said, well, who told you? I said, Dr. Nancy Caroline, and I work for Freedom House Ambulance Service. And fortunately for me, 
that happened to be a nurse there that was aware of some of the things that we were doing. And she politely told him, well, they are allowed to do that now. Wow. And um, that was the end of that challenge itself. But, you know, it, it, it became the norm uh, for us to, to, to do the things that we were doing. Uh, we were the first to transmit an EKG from the field back to the emergency room uh, for the physician that was on duty at that time to kind of coincide. Do you see what I see? Yeah. And uh, so what's the institution of, of you know, what, what what's the police department saying about this? You know, while you're you're kind of taking over this role, this critical role and potentially, you know, which, which I would imagine are, are obviously more successful at it. Um, well, of keeping the patient alive. <laughs> that that presented another set of challenges because <laughs> we we were somewhat looked at as as uh, a threat mm -hmm. to police officers' uh, job, uh, and as a result of that, uh, we discovered that police, and I'm not bashing the police department in any way, shape, or form, but they were not giving us the calls in our district that we should have been getting. Mm -hmm. So what we did, once we discovered that, we bought a police scanner and start monitoring the police calls. And whenever a call would come in, say in the Hill District that uh, we didn't get, we would self-dispatch. And oftentimes we would arrive at the patient's home, treat them, transport them, and pass the police on the way <laughs> Amazing. to the person's home <laughs> like i don't know about this uh, yeah well and, i'm sure I, I mean you guys were more motivated you guys were more interested you guys weren't i'm i'm sure a lot of times the cops saw the address and were like oh okay fine if there's someone available go there you know i'm i, I i'm sure of it and, and and even if they even if they got there in time like i mean the they did they didn't deliver medical care. Their job was just to try and get the patient to the hospital. I'm assuming they had no knowledge of CPR. They had none of the stuff that you were using at the time. You're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, their training was minimal at best because CPR had not been introduced into the public at that time at all. So it's to put you in the back and we both get up front and one talks on the radio and the other one drives and away we go to the emergency room. So what you have here is two competing forces. And unfortunately, we bumped heads on more than one of the occasions. There were times when we would arrive at the scene and the police were perhaps doing something that was not correct. Yeah. And we would challenge them on that. Right. And you, you have to look at uh, oftentimes a white male with a badge, a gun, and a nightstick. So they would, you know, kind of say some choice words to you, mm -hmm. get the away from me or whatever. And 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 you all you 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 had to, you know, obey whatever their their concern were because they held the upper hand at that particular time. Yeah. Um so oftentimes it was our goal to 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 beat the police right. uh, to any call. Right. Yeah. And there's so there's I'm sorry, Calvin, it looks like you're about to say something. But um there's just there's so much there. Um 
you know, and and interestingly, a lot of what you mentioned still happens today in some form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it might be veiled, and there might be other language to express what happens with relationships with the police and the community and mistrust and authority that you know is not necessarily doing the right thing or not trained to do the right thing or is not able to de-escalate a situation properly so you know in that period of time like Kaveh said like you may be slow to respond right the police might be slow to respond um they are looking through things with a different lens different perspective they are known notoriously in that neighborhood for maybe arresting people or seeing people as less than all these types of things. And then you guys come in as black men um, with a legitimate real threat of violence against you and you're trying to help a patient and you're doing something different than they're doing. Like, I can't imagine all the things going through your head and how you handle that situation professionally and safely and leave away with your life. Um, There's just, I just, I, I can't even wrap my head around all of that. Um, and the fact that you're living to tell the story right in front of us right now, like I just, I just, there's so much there. Um, how did you guys do it? Like in real, like, you know, if you could remember that time and I, I'm sure a lot of it is actually maybe difficult to talk about, but like, what is that like in the moment? Well, I, I think you just answered your own question. We were actually living in the moment. So the challenges that we were facing, we did not look at them as hurdles or barriers um, because our goal at that time was to provide the best medical care that we could to a, a community that we knew firsthand right. was underserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as long as we were able to do that, um, we were fine because we had also built up a reputation of respect within uh, the residents of the community that mm-hmm. when they would call for a medical emergency, they would tell the police dispatcher, don't send the police send them. in Freedom House. <laughs> yeah. 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 So right. um you 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 have these two competing forces there that eventually we was able to overcome that. And 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 what happened was there were times, and unfortunately, it wasn't in the Hill District, it was outside of the Hill District. Uh, where uh, the police would come on a call of a very critical nature and they couldn't, obviously wouldn't be able to handle it. Um, and they would request Freedom House. Mm-hmm. And I can actually give you an example on which I was involved in where a young child was riding a bike and he was struck by a bus. And it was a very traumatic injury to his lower extremities. And the police arrived on the scene, and obviously they didn't have a clue as to what to do. But this was in an affluent neighborhood that had to rely on the police to get this person to the hospital. So they requested Freedom House. And the dispatcher told them, I can't send them because it's not their neighborhood. So the the police officer responded, well, you better send someone out here that knows what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were monitoring the police radio. Right. So we self-dispatched on the call and got there and and transported the child, uh, obviously with treatment, and subsequently saved his life. Now that was great, but it also, I would say, put us in a, a situation where we were victims of our own success. 
because your affluent neighborhoods started complaining to the political powers. Mm. How dare you allow this rundown, neglected, poor neighborhood have better medical care than I do in my neighborhood, and I supported you, I voted for you, I contributed to your campaign, mm -hmm. I own mm -hmm. this business, I own this $50 million home or what have you, um, you better do something. So uh, pressure was put on the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh to do something. So he had to bow to the wishes of his constituents. And it's ironic because the common sense approach was you expand what you have. Right. But you have to understand racism reared its ugly head at that particular time. So in order to uh, control this entity, which he could not, because remember, this was a private entity that served an underserved neighborhood. So he couldn't, he didn't have control. So he had to wrestle control away from it. And in doing that, I instituted a, a set of guidelines. Imagine a, and you call for an ambulance and the vehicle is told it can't use its lights and sirens to get to you, which means uh, your response time is going to be ultimately delayed. Mm -hmm. So that was an executive order coming from the mayor directly to Freedom House. When you go in this particular area, you're not allowed to use your lights and sirens. Freedom House also had a contract with the city of Pittsburgh to provide uh, emergency services to the business district because that's where your finances are. That's where your money is. So in order to issue another hurdle to Freedom House, the contract say was roughly about $50,000 a year, which was you know a lot of money back in the 60s and things like that. So the service depended on it perhaps to make its payroll. Mm. So instead of me giving you the $50,000 on January 1st when it was due as part of the agreement, maybe I'll give you 10,000. Mm. Maybe six months down the road, I'll give you another 5,000 mm. and so on. So what I'm doing is I'm making it very difficult for this service to operate. Mm. Um, and and so as a result of that, Freedom House itself, if you look at the structure of the ambulance service, it was built on fiscal quicksand. It had to rely on grants and donations and things like that. So it, it never really was on solid footing. Right. As a result of that, instead of expanding Freedom House, the mayor, bowing to the wishes of his constituents, decided to create his own EMS system. And there was no room in his system for an entity such as Freedom House. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, you had an all-white EMS system of suburbanites coming into an urban environment to start an EMS system. So what you had with that is individuals coming into the city of Pittsburgh with stereotypical ideas on what it would be like coming into an urban environment. So they came in with the notion that coming into an urban environment was the most dangerous place in the world. So they brought with them knives and guns and they left them in their cars. The vehicles themselves even had handcuffs on them. Wow. The, the trucks had what you would call 
seven cell flashlights, which were, you know, about this long, not to find your way around in the dark, mm -hmm. but to use as a weapon because I'm in this dangerous mm -hmm. environment right. and I have yeah. to protect myself. On top of that, the, the paramedics were dressed like police officers. Yeah, it sounds very much like police. instead. Yeah, of so yeah. that authoritarian mindset mm -hmm. reared its ugly head. So mm -hmm. it was nothing for an, a, a Pittsburgh EMS unit to pull up alongside of a car that perhaps ran a stop sign and, and reprimand that driver because I got that mindset that I'm an authoritarian figure. I'll come to your home, perhaps you're having chest pains. Instead of me knocking on your door, I would take my flashlight and bang on it and step off to the side because remember, I'm, this, I'm in this dangerous neighborhood. Right. You never know what projectile would come through there. Mm -hmm. wow. So that was the makeup of, of Pittsburgh EMS. And, 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 you know, I'm not one of these disgruntled employees or anything. I love the department. I love the people that work there and it will always have a special place in my heart. And, and, but we're talking about a different time. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And you mentioned earlier that you're, you're somewhat saddened that you never heard about Freedom House. And what I'm here to tell you is... I'm not surprised by that because that was the intent plan. Right. And, and, and what happened during the transition period is there was an agreement between the city of Pittsburgh and Freedom House that once you are coming in, you start your own system, you would merge this organization within yours. You would take its equipment, you would take its people and, and, and everything would, be fine. The problem with the agreement said that you would take all the people, but it didn't say you had to keep them. So that was a concerted effort by Pittsburgh EMS or the leaders of Pittsburgh EMS to get rid of as many of Freedom House's employees as it humanly possible. So you do that by putting them through stressful situations. I change your shifts at a moment notice. Uh, here I am, the, the first person, innovative person outside of the hospital. None of my training was accepted. I was like a new person. 
I couldn't examine a patient. I couldn't drive the truck. I couldn't talk on the radio. All in intent to frustrate the individuals, including myself, to say, okay, y'all got this. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. Right. And it was very successful. Where 80% of the people that came over from Freedom House were all dismissed. So if you think about it, if you get rid of the people that made history, you essentially wipe out the history that they made. Right. So subsequently, people oftentimes say, I've never heard and I feel bad that I haven't. And 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 I understand that, but I know the reason why. It was an intended purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the majority of the people are, were terminated and uh, a handful of us uh, withstood the onslaught. And uh, I being one of those that uh, was able to stay there for the majority of my uh, career, if not all of it. Um, and, and that had its unique circumstances. I went on a call with the crew that I was working on and we walked in a home and the person was in cardiac arrest and the crew that I was working with had no idea what to do. Hmm. They panicked. And they looked at the person that isn't allowed, that wasn't allowed to do anything and said, you take over. So I started assigning duties and responsibilities. You start the IV, you put them on the monitor, and I'll intubate the patient. And we subsequently saved the person's life. And that was fantastic. But it the all had to be kept quiet. The degree of altruism required and yes. self-restraint and, you know, professionalism or whatever they call it these days mm. is you know, seems insurmountable. I mean, to make it through that for the sake of the patient um, when there's so many obstacles in your way that are purposeful, as you say. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely correct. Is, I, I don't have the word for it. <laughs> and, 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 and that's understandable because um, that particular incident itself kind of, I, 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 I had a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. It, I, I once I discovered the caliber or the training of the individuals that I was working with, I, I made a decision. I said, you have to step up your game. You have to be more assertive. You have to be more aggressive. You have to be more uh, vocal when you go on these calls and, and treat patients and things. You can no longer be the person that came over from Freedom House, which we were labeled as, instead of a member of the crew. Mm. So, so you're saying I, this to your black peers, you're saying, or to the... Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Instead of saying, oh, this is a, a, a new employee that just started. Oh, he's one of the people that came over from Freedom House. Mm. So the label remained. Right. And, and, and so I, I, I had to figure out a way to overcome that challenge. And, 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 you know, it, it, it was a challenge, but I was determined to show the department that you're not going to remove John Moon mm -hmm. because you think he can't do the job. Mm -hmm. And and in doing that, I, I, I definitely became more aggressive and more vocal and more outspoken uh, mm -hmm. all while I was there throughout the department. I wasn't you know, the bad employee because I got promoted up through up through the ranks to the position of assistant chief. 
but it wasn't without its challenges. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was determined to, uh, the more challenges, the more hurdles, the more barriers I came from, the more determined I became. Uh, the department remained steadily white for 10 years. We went 10 years without hiring African-American. And I challenged the department on that. It must have been so challenging. It must have been, the truth of it is, you. it would have been easier to quit. They wanted you to quit. And it your life would have been easier in so many ways <laughs> had you just been like, fine, you win, I'm over it. How much of you sticking around and doing this and climbing up the ranks was, pardon my language, a bit of an F you to the people who didn't want you to succeed? Well, um, a large part of it. You're absolutely correct. Um, but in doing that, it wasn't so much, I wasn't satisfied with just being there. I had to figure out how to make a difference within the department because I saw the uh, witness firsthand, the, the inequities uh, that were in the department. Uh, to give you an example, the department trained its personnel that if you go into, say, an underserved neighborhood, a public, public housing complex, you're not going to get a heart attack, a stroke, or diabetic because they don't have them there. Mm -hmm. You get a drug overdose. Yeah. Yes, you will get a drug overdose, domestic violence, or mm -hmm. shooting. Uh, that's all that happens in that area. If you want a medical call, you work on a unit that handles an affluent neighborhood. They were being trained that way. Mm -hmm. So I had to challenge a department on training its people to, to, to look at things from a different uh, perspective. And, and, and fortunately, I was able to to accomplish that goal. Um, and and then I had to deal with the diversity mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. um, within the department. The department was 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 just so accustomed to doing things in a certain way that they didn't even think about the makeup of the department. That well, I mean, must this have been sorry, sorry, go ahead. It's just like you know, it's it's case in point and how though there's they're different you know distinct entities when you talk about health equity and you know diversity equity inclusion but they're so you know they're so well intertwined right that one just one hand feeds the other because just as you're saying it's like if your lens and perspective is so limited that's all you're going to see right that's all you're going to see with an underserved community that's all you're going to see with something that you're um that you're so naive about, um, right? Or so ignorant about, I should say, and how that impacts the care that people are getting. Um, and that of course still, still reigns true today. Um, and so when you talk about the lack of representation, the lack of diversity in that department, how much it, it plays a role in how people are treated from a health perspective. It, 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 it was the major role uh, mm -hmm. within the department as a whole. Um, the department instituted a policy. It was called uh, no medical emergency. And what that meant is you would call for help and I would come to your residence 
And I would make the determination as the paramedic whether you needed to go in my vehicle or not. And uh, or whether you were sick enough to go in 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 my vehicle or not. Um, I would say, well, can't you get uh, perhaps a, a, a Uber nowadays or a Jitney or or a cab to take you to the emergency room right. because you're not sick enough to ride mm -hmm. in the back of my vehicle. And and I would leave. Yeah. And and so in doing that. I had to come up with a way to get the management within a department to look at things from a different light. And, and, and I, I, I started with the promotional process and, and things like that. Um, I had to figure out a way to get into a position where I could make a change in the department. So that was my my next goal. Uh, I had to find out or figure out a way to get promoted to get into a position where I could make a change within the department. Yep. And and once I did that, then I started, I jumped on the diversity issue and I challenged the department on this hiring process. And and you know, not without <laughs> opposition, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> when people, I mean, it's like if you did that now in 2024, there are still people who are going to complain. Exactly. And there are people who are going to be like, don't understand the concept of diversity, you know, and I mean, look we at have Elon, against this. Yeah. I mean, this and they we're talking about in 1960s and 1970s. This is mm -hmm. this is um, I, I mean, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you did it. <laughs> it was so it's just so hard. The whole thing was designed to to break you and to keep you from doing it. The fact that you were fighting it all is uh so impressive. I mean, we're still fighting for it. And 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 you're absolutely correct. And and I, I had made myself a promise that the more barriers and hurdles and, and that I came up with opposition I came up against, the more determined I became. Right. So okay. You brought up this idea of diversity. You got to find a find a way to to solve it. So I designed the very first diversity recruitment program within the city of Pittsburgh, mm. and I patterned it after Freedom House, where I went out into the community and recruited individuals that had no concept of what a paramedic was, no idea how to become one and place them into a training program and train them uh, how to become an EMT, paid them a salary while they were there. And once they completed that and moved up to the paramedic training, uh, they got a bump in salary. And, and once they completed the training, I was able to get the department to hold job vacancies open because they had invested all this money into these individuals. Obviously, that was political, you know, deals made behind the scenes and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But the department had invested into these individuals. So it was just a lateral movement mm -hmm. uh, for them to hire. And some of them uh, are, are still with Pittsburgh EMS today. Um, and I started this program back in 1990. And mm -hmm. some have been able to retire and go on and do other things. 
And all while I was there, that was the normal way to hire paramedics. You wouldn't dare hire an all-white class. Yeah. And obviously, you know, once I left, the department reverted back to its let's do what's popular rather than what's right. Mm -hmm. And 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 as a result, uh today I I, I retired in 2009. The department still has some very serious diversity issues and concerns. And fortunately, uh, I'm working behind the scenes uh, with the chief of the department, who's uh, an African-American female. Uh, and she's someone that I hired through my diversity recruitment program 20, <laughs> 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Wow. Set the seeds. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it it goes to show why this story is so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It goes to show that you need people working from different angles, coming from different communities, representing communities to be able to create something so important that it affects the world. I mean, the truth of it is, eventually, if there was no Freedom House, eventually in this modern day of you know, evidence-based medicine, we would have, someone would have been like, hey, Maybe cops throwing people into the back of the paddy wagon and just speeding mm -hmm. down the highway isn't the best way. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could, but how many thousands of lives did you guys save in before that that possibility could have existed? If not for you, eventually, yeah, it might have changed at some point in some way, but thousands and thousands of lives across the nation were saved, not just directly because of you, but indirectly because of what your group did and accomplished. And that wouldn't have happened unless it was a group of people who came from a different background than the standard suburban people that, mm -hmm. that would have gotten that gig. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it it's a perfect example of why it's important and how it can benefit everybody. You're, you're absolutely correct. And, and the best example I like to use is, is think of, of today that this country is in an opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And the drug of choice to treat that is Narcan. And Narcan is this wonder drug. Uh, everybody has it. You can, it's, a, it's, it's almost, it's actually an over-the-counter <laughs> drug now. And, and what people don't know is at Freedom House, we administered Narcan back in 1973. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We were the first to take it out of the hospital. And, and there was no fentanyl back then. But we used it to treat heroin overdoses. Right. And and it, it's it's interesting because none of the drug overdose patients woke up in our vehicles. <laughs> and it was intended that way. We didn't yeah. want them to wake up. We 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 kept you in a confused, dazed state uh until we could get you into a more controlled environment. So in order to do that, we didn't just inject the Narcan into your IM or however they're giving it nowadays. Uh, we titrated it through an IV. Uh -huh. And we monitored your respiratory rate to determine how much to continue. If, if your rate slowed down, we'd speed the IV up. And and if it remained steady, we just have it on a drip and, and monitor your respiratory rate. So by the time you got to the emergency room, you were still in your confused, unconscious, dazed state. Unstable, yeah. Yes. And 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 we planned it that way. That that brings up another question I had for you. What I, you know, it comes back to this difference between the relationship Freedom House had with the community than, say, the police would. And, and it would be that 
what I had heard, and, and I want to hear if this is true. You know, if there was drug overdoses, the people of Freedom House were able to contact the local drug dealers. They were able to work with the community in a way that allowed them to to directly go to the drug dealers, explain to them the concept of overdose, see what was being used, and have a much more, I guess, grassroots sort of like connection to the the community when it came to drug overdoses. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. And and that's accurate. You're absolutely correct. And and whether we uh, think about it today, it's being done in a similar way with your uh, needle distribution sites and and things like that. Uh, it, it's 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 still some kind of way of of taking the individual person and saying, look, uh, we're here to help you in any way, shape, or form. So yeah. Um, we we also had to encourage the individual victims of drug overdoses uh, to call because under their mindset, if I call and say John Moon is OD'd on heroin or whatever, they're going to send the police. Right. And the police, instead of taking them to the hospital, will perhaps take them to jail. Mm -hmm. And and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> an entirely different set of problems uh, would occur. And and obviously, let's face it, if if you take me to jail and I've, I've OD'd, there's a 99% chance I'd probably die there. Yeah. Because, you know, there was no care. So, um, you know, as they say, nothing is new under the sun uh, about what's happening. Obviously, there's been changes and improvements and things sure. like that. Uh, but it all has a foundation as to where it began mm -hmm. and began uh, at Freedom House. Um, so that's the reason why just this sitting here talking to you all um, is, to me, it, it, it makes my heart smile because I want this country and the world and every, because look at, you have a group of individuals that uh, refuse to allow their past to determine their future. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about a group of individuals that decided to rise above it in spite of it. Uh, and because of the, the, the weathered setbacks and disappointments and broken promises that create a system that's emulated on television nowadays, or, or people take for granted nowadays. And, and I, I'm sorry, I, 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 that's an astronomical accomplishment that very few people know about. Yeah. And, and it didn't start in LA, it didn't start in Seattle, it didn't start in Miami or Jacksonville. Those two white guys that rode around in the red pickup truck, they didn't, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't start it. As a matter of fact, what people don't realize is the producers that wrote that program, Emergency, came to Pittsburgh and wrote on Freedom House's ambulances to take that concept back to California. Mm -hmm. uh, did, did the people at the time in Freedom House know what kind of impact they were going to be having on medicine forever? The people doing this, did they know? Or is it just like you said, they're living in the moment, being the, they're proving themselves in their own way? And and you're absolutely correct. We, we were actually living in the moment, not even considering that 
we were laying the groundwork for, for EMS systems across this country, if not uh, the world. Uh, we were, were so hell-bent on serving a, a underserved, neglected community to make sure that they got the very best possible care that what went on outside of that area mm -hmm. wasn't our problem. Right. It wasn't our concern whatsoever. Now, if you called us, we would obviously, you know, go. But we we were content with handling this community that that we were um, had taken a, a, a commitment uh, to service, and and we had a reputation and respect in the community so much that something you wouldn't think about doing today, we could actually park our vehicle a block away with the windows down and the keys in it and, and, and the engine running and go up the street to a restaurant. And I've done it and come back and the truck is still, still there. there. No one, yes. So was your job something that was, well, I guess I have two questions. One, you know, to be, um, an employee at the Freedom House, was that something that was like the upper echelon that everybody wanted to do was very competitive or, you know, people were maybe hesitant to try to even accomplish all that training and they thought it was maybe insurmountable. And then my other question is, because I would imagine that you're incredibly revered and you're in the Hill District doing this work. Um, on the other side of things, like in affluent communities or neighborhoods or white, predominantly white communities, where people are like, I don't want you touching me. I'd honestly rather die mm -hmm. in the streets. We experienced that uh, at Freedom House. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to kind of devise a psychological approach to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, perhaps you don't want me to put these uh, electrodes on you or take your blood pressure or whatever. But if you don't allow me to do that, there's a very good chance that by the time you get to the emergency room, you will be worse off than you are now. And oftentimes when you mention that, the patient would relent and say, okay, well, do whatever it is uh, you have to do. And, and you know, we subsequently were able to um, solve that dilemma. Um, the And your first question was? The first question was, um, was that position as an employee was it like highly coveted was it very competitive or was it kind of just a select few kind of knew about it and hmm. um you know was the training seem did it, was the training viewed as something that was very difficult to accomplish that people were kind of very hesitant to even try to attempt uh very few people knew about it hmm. uh unfortunately because it was kind of based around a the the freedom house's organization itself so during that time, you had different um, job training programs going on within uh, the community itself. Um, my introduction into it was rather unique because I started out as an orderly in the hospital. And I just happened to be in a patient's room when two Freedom House paramedics came in to um, take a patient that was being discharged. And the command, they, they actually commanded respect when they came into the room. And, and it was amazing because I, I couldn't take my eye off of these two guys. 
and they they really didn't say too much. They they their uniforms were neatly pressed and and uh, they they stood out without you know obviously there were two black guys, and afros and beards were the style at that particular time. So they had afros and beards. I had one, but it was something about these two guys that put me in a, a, a frame of mind that said, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Inspiring. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'm an orderly in the hospital. I change bedpans. I make beds. I wash patients. I insert Foley catheters. How difficult can this job be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I went to Freedom House's offices to put in an application. And the guy said, okay, if I showed you a picture of the heart, would you be able to diagram the circulatory system? <laughs> no. Okay, if I showed you a picture of the lungs, would you be able to diagram the respiratory system? No. He says, okay, you're not qualified to work here. And I left at that particular time, obviously downtrodden. And, mm -hmm. and that little voice in the back of my head said, okay, John, you want to do that job. It's up to you to find out how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I I'm trying to get you guys to conceive this. I went to the Yellow Pages. Which is a phone book. If you so know, know, a, a lot of our listeners, a lot of our listeners will have no idea. No idea. Okay, yeah, kids, kids, yeah. listen. Before there was iPhones, there. Uh -huh. If you wanted to get a number, you couldn't just say, "Hey Siri, what's the number for blank?" Absolutely. You, you would have to pull out this giant book. Enormous, very enormous yes. book, uh -huh. and you would yes. look through number. You would look through it to, to find the the number of like the car dealership or whatever yeah. you wanted to look for. And the first three pages would always be like triple A car dealership, right? Businesses, you're businesses. Right. It mm -hmm. was awful. You <laughs> little brats have no idea how good you have it. Sorry, go on, sir. So and and. And everybody's name was in the phone book. All you had to put, do is put a person's name in there and, 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 and look up their name and you can get their phone number and their address. But I used the Yellow Pages and, and I found out that they were having a basic training program at a fire academy in Pittsburgh. So I, I called out there and signed up and went there for 13 weeks, uh, twice, twice a week, and got my uh, basic EMT certificate and went back to Freedom House about three months later and got hired on the spot. Wow. Um, so much so as they sent me from Freedom House's offices to the uniform store to get that white uniform that I admired three months ago when I first saw these two guys. And today I have no idea who they were. And I probably worked with them, but right. I had no idea who they right. were at the time. Right. And um as they say, the rest is is history. Well, you know, you, you talk about how basically people try to write you out of history. We'll, we'll say his name. Mayor Peter Flaherty was the mayor that you described earlier, who, I mean, if we're trying to be as gracious as possible, just made terrible decisions. If we're being more realistic, there's probably some base of uh, racism in his choices that he made. But either way... People try to actively write you out of history. And now I've learned about it just recently. Sophie's knows about it relatively recently too. Do you feel like the recognition is is starting to come? Do you feel like it's um 
you feel like has it always kind of been there in certain circles or do you feel like maybe now people are starting to realize your contributions it's not enough i'll say that myself mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. but do you feel like things are changing a little bit uh yes i do um it it the the story itself has a lot of uh momentum behind it uh the the book american sirens played a major role uh, the documentary, uh, the Emmy Award-winning documentary, uh, First Responders, uh, played a major role, uh, as well as um, what I would say, and 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 believe me, I've I've been challenged on this uh, by the mayor's son. Mm. Yeah, wow. and he 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 reached out to me on Facebook and. Uh, wanted to take me to lunch and I tried to blow him off as much as I could, but he, he was <laughs> rather, he was rather persistent. So I made sure when I went to lunch with him, I met him in a public place, yeah, which was a coffee shop across from his office. He was an attorney and he was concerned about uh, the book American Sirens labeled his father as a racist and his, his grandsons would read it and find out and question him about it. So I, 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 I explained to him that we are really not calling the individual a racist. It's the policies that he put in place at mm. that time mm -hmm. uh, were racist policies. He put individuals in there to carry out these racist policies. And, and so as a result of that, you being the executive of the city at that particular time bears the responsibility yeah. for the people that you put in place to carry out yeah, these policies. Th these these policies. Yeah. So we agreed to disagree uh, mm -hmm. with uh, things, and and believe me or not, that there's been various pushbacks. Uh, we have a display at a Heinz History Museum in Pittsburgh. Uh -huh. And and the mayor's executive secretary happened to visit one day and seen the letter that Freedom House had with the city of Pittsburgh. And he he called the curators at the museum and, and kind of challenged them on the accuracy of the information that was there. And and it was difficult to do because it was the actual letter right. itself. And I put it there. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you unbelievable. Can't. I mean, unbelievable, but very believable. Very yeah. believable. <laughs> very <laughs> believable. And, I mean, and so, <laughs> so, and you're talking about <laughs> being written out of history. You know, we wrote the very first manual, America, uh, uh, Emergency Care in the Street. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the actual copy, and it gives credit to the accomplishments of Freedom House and Dr. Saffer and, and Nancy Caroline and, 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 and things on what we were able to accomplish and things like that. But as additional copies of the book are being printed, Freedom House is gradually being written out of mm. the book. Mm. Uh, it gives credit to the services in Seattle and Los Angeles and Jacksonville and Miami, how great those services are and things like that. And it talks about, there's a, a paragraph about Freedom House and it mentions Dr. Nancy Caroline. And it, all it says is Freedom House was comprised of a group of individuals, black men, that didn't have an opportunity to get a high school education. Hmm. And that's it. 
we wrote the book. Wow. And in order for you to become a paramedic in the United States, you had to read that book because mm -hmm. the federal government said, this is what you have to do. It, again, it's surprising and it absolutely shouldn't be, but it mm -hmm. still like blows my mind. I mean, it should total. I should totally be expecting that this is exactly how it would happen. <laughs> but exactly. but mean, uh, it resonates. It it just like it it's a it's a theme that is seen time and time again. Yeah. Which is why I feel like, you know, and in thinking about your story and hearing you tell it, it's something that I feel like should be part of medical school curricula or any Absolutely. medical curricula. Like this story yeah. needs to propagate. Um, can I can I ask why why hasn't a movie been made of this? Well, that's what I was thinking. I like, mean, this is the it, perfect it, movie. It, 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 and more, more importantly, uh, sir, who would play you? Let's call it. <laughs> call your shot. Who do you want to play? Denzel, you? perhaps. Denzel. No, no, he's younger. Too young. He's younger. We're, no, we're, you, we're looking at Morgan uh, Freeman or somebody. <laughs> no, no, no. You want like we're talking about the original story. Why isn't there a a movie about it? Um, I'll put it this way. It, it's easier said than done. Um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that uh, there hasn't been offers to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, attempts in the works. I'll, I'll sure. say that to yeah. to do that. Um, but you 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 have to kind of be cautious, primarily because. Do you want the real story told right. or do you want Hollywood's right. version mm -hmm. of it? So uh, that's where you, 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 the unbalance yeah. is. Uh, is it going to be told the way I'm sitting here talking to the both of you uh, yeah. now? Or are we going to sugarcoat it to make it's it look like, like, because it. let's face it, you got 911 Lone Star and you got 911 uh and, and those stories that talk about the the how great the EMS systems yeah. are. You got Night Watch, which is uh, in New Orleans, uh, yeah. and things like that. Uh, so I, I can tell you the effort is there. Yeah. It's just that you want it told from a first person's yeah. point of view. You want it done the right. I, I mean, an HBO, like... 10 part series that's the way to do it i'm I telling you hollywood <laughs> listen to me listen to me i'll come on as a medical advisor if you want <laughs> Chief Moon and myself. <laughs> listen to I us we'll make this happen uh, i know it's gonna happen though i'm sure yeah, it, there it, was like i mean here's what's gonna happen there was like probably one white guy in all of freedom house like and the story will be told from his perspective <laughs> i'm <laughs> I'm not gonna lie that to happen. That's, that's, <laughs> no, thank you. I'm not, okay, good. good. I'm, 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 okay. I'm not gonna lie that to well, happen. Well, sir, oh my, I can't express enough how much of an honor and and really a privilege it's been to speak to you. I mean, I'm, we're so excited to do it, and you're such an impressive, inspiring person. Your story isn't is impressive and inspiring, but you yourself are also very uh, inspiring. So I can't uh, thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you so very much for being on. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Is there anything you want people to look up? Or is there anything you would like to plug before we we exit the show? Well, it, it's, it's one of the things that I 
am striving very diligently to see happen is I, I, I want the history of EMS taught in every EMT training program. I want it taught in every paramedic training program. I, I want it taught in every EMS physicians training program uh, because, you know, that, let's face it, that's a specialty now. And so that's the best way that I can see that this part of history will not, will no longer be dormant mm -hmm. uh, like it's been for the last, you know, 50 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, if I had my way, Freedom House's emblems would be on every EMS systems truck in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working very diligently now to make sure that it's on the side of every city of Pittsburgh EMS's ambulance. Okay. Um, there are people that work there today that have never heard of Freedom House. Wow. So I want to start taking care of home first. Mm -hmm. And and then because let's face it, there's more notoriety outside of Pittsburgh and other states and other cities than it is right here in Pittsburgh. And I and I I, I want to change that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really what my my overall initial goal is. But I really really appreciate uh, this opportunity to to sit and talk to you all. Primarily because, like I mentioned earlier, you are fulfilling the desires of my heart. And that's getting this part of history out there. So your audience, and and I was in uh, Austin, Texas last week. I want every medical director or EMS physician that was in attendance when I spoke to kind of take that part of history back to their respective services. Uh, unfortunately, the majority of the people sitting in that audience, and it was like 1,500 of them, had never heard of Freedom House. And I want to change that. Mm -hmm. uh, and and this is uh, a platform to do it. So, you know, I can thank you both enough for giving me this opportunity. Uh, and to this date, I, I, I have made myself a commitment that whenever anyone calls and or emails me or texts me about telling the story. No is not part of my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. That's how we got so, you. That's how we got you. Yeah. <laughs> we got you. Oh man. Well, I mean, I hope this is not the last time that we speak. You know, I think that, you know, for as my role as um, you know, leader of this organization that was founded in 2021, um, ABGH would be more than proud to have your story told because um you know, a lot of what you talk about just resonates with us and what we are about, which is not only, you know, attempting to, you know, better the health and the livelihood of Black communities, but also mm -hmm. that part of representation and like you were saying, diversity and inclusion that is so important. And, in, in, you know, when the second you saw those Freedom House employees that looked just like you, you said, wow, I can do this too. I mean, right. that is such a huge part of it. And I feel like that some some semblance of that story is told so many times for people, um, you know, who who come from underserved um, or I'll say underrepresented backgrounds in medical fields. So, um, you know, we're 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 just so. I mean, when Kaveh Eva like texted me about this, I just I couldn't have been more excited. Um, sure, she usually uh, says no right away. <laughs> so you know, immediately, <laughs> immediately says no to me <laughs> constantly. Okay. <laughs> it was the first time she responded, 
in years. She was like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and that's an interesting point because I want the EMS systems that are interested in diversifying or committed to diversifying their departments is you have to invest in the community in which you serve mm -hmm. because that's where your allies are. Mm -hmm. And 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 it, it's a proven point because I used it back in 1990 when I, I did recruiting for the city of Pittsburgh EMS. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested or serious about uh, diversifying the ranks within your department, go out into the community. It's easy to post it on TikTok and Facebook and LinkedIn that you're hiring, but you have to get out there and and, and recruit from the community uh, in which you serve. Um, you know, and I'll stop on this. In, in Pennsylvania, there was a, a law that the only way you could get into paramedic and EMT training is you had to be part of a volunteer fire or EMS system. Hmm. You don't have that in an urban environment. So right there in itself uh, is a stumbling block right. toward diversifying your workforce. And so I appeal that ruling uh, to the state and we had a hearing and, 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 Fortunately, uh, we were able to get that ruling uh, taken away to the point that anyone in the state of Pennsylvania can now sign up and, and go to an EMT and or paramedic training program, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're a volunteer or a regular lay person. And, and, you know, not too many people know that, but, you know, I don't care. It's just that that was part of the effort to, to change the, yep. the trajectory of the way uh, things are. And and that's all part of that diversifying your workforce concept. Mm -hmm. And and so now anyone can can get into an EMT paramedic training program in Pennsylvania. And it wasn't always that way. Mm -hmm. yeah, you are perfect. you have so much I mean vigor and energy. And are you on TikTok? Is that what you're implying? Or you so no, I'm not. <laughs> Oh God. No, no, I, I, no. Oh, I would watch. I would watch if you do TikTok. I'm, I'm technology challenged, so I'm. Not, so there's no guess. way I would be on TikTok. I would. I would no, you you came better prepared than ninety percent of our medical guests. So I have no complaints. You've done a fantastic job, sir. It's been such a real privilege. Thank you again so very very much. Please, well, if we, need you a, we need a picture cup. We need a picture. I've been taking. I'm taking video the whole time. I'm gonna make <laughs> little video clips from this. It's gonna be great. You're gonna love it. Um. Yeah. Um. Thank you again, both so much, uh, Sophie. Will you also, will you plug ABGH before we close out? Sure. So ABGH, the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, not TikTok, <laughs> um, at blackandgastro.org. Um, you can find us on our on our website too. So we have a lot of um, exciting things planned for 2024, a lot of community events um, that are virtual and in person. So um, so please, uh, I hope to see you there. And thank you again so much, Mr. Miller, for your time and for all you've done, honestly, to save lives. Thank you both for this opportunity. And uh, please keep this momentum going. I'm depending on you to do that. Yes. We'll do everything we can, sir. We promise. <laughs> thank okay, you thank all. you so much. Good okay. night, everyone. All right, have a Thanks. nice one.
This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.